and welcome to GEMcast, a geriatric emergency medicine podcast. Before we get started today, I have two exciting announcements. The first is that we now have a website, gempodcast.com. That's G-E-M podcast.com. And you can look there, find all the shows and episodes, as well as leave comments. I will be happy to respond to comments or take suggestions for future episodes. We also now have a Twitter account. The handle is at GemPodcast. Feel free to reach out, connect, share ideas on there. The second announcement is that we are very grateful for a generous grant from the John A. Hartford Foundation and the Atlantic Philanthropies. These are both groups that are dedicated to improving the care of older adults and have generously supported GemCast. Let's get started. Today's episode will be the first in a series on geriatric toxicology. We all know that kids can present differently with toxicologic emergencies. For example, they may have different ingestants or their symptoms may be different. And I was curious as to how that changes when you're looking specifically at older adults. And so to talk about that today, I have Mei Yen, who is trained in emergency medicine and toxicology. Welcome, Mei. Thanks for having me. And we're going to talk first about ways in which older adults are different when it comes to toxicologic exposures, and then we will go through cases. So May, to start out, how are toxicologic emergencies or presentations different in older adults? Well, I think that's a great question. I think it's a great overall topic. Um, we have such a rising proportion of patients now are considered elderly, and I define this as being over the age of 65. In toxicologic exposures or overdoses, there are actually a rather small minority consider the total of exposures. However, when they do present, they tend to have a higher mortality. And that's usually just due to their physiologic frailty and physiologic changes. There was, in fact, one study that looked really at seven groups of ingestions within the elderly. They looked at theophylline, digoxin, benzos, acetaminophen, calcium channel blockers, TCAs, and salicylates. And they found that the death rate from both unintentional as well as intentional exposures actually increased by 35% per decade after the age of 19. So as you get older, these ingestions become more deadly. That's huge. 35% yeah. for each decade. That's a lot. So by the time you are 65, 75, your mortality is vastly increased. Correct. And elderly too, I would say, while we don't see quite as many intentional ingestions. So we see a lot less like acute ingestions. The majority of what we see, I think, are more chronic ingestions or what we call therapeutic misadventures, where they're just taking the wrong dose, taking some extra doses. What are some of the physiologic changes in older adults that makes them different and makes their mortality so much higher? So a lot of it has to do with the pharmacokinetics and the toxicokinetics and how adults or people in general metabolize and then eliminate and excrete xenobiotics or exposures. So one thing is they have decreased muscle as you get older. So the drugs that tend to distribute to lean tissue get less, like caffeine, digoxin. As adults get older, they have increased fat percentage as they're losing the muscle has to be made up for something. So there's actually increased volume distribution for lipid-soluble things, calcium channel blockers, TCA. Overall, you have a little less intracellular volume, so you get a decreased volume distribution for water-soluble materials. And then certain things like what you expect, you have changes in hepatic function as you get older, your liver gets smaller, you have less hepatic flow, and that changes kind of the enzymatic effects in terms of metabolism. And of course, we always think about the renal insufficiency in older adults. As you get older, you get decreased renal flow, um, results in decreased GFR, particularly in medications that are renally excreted, things like lithium and digoxin 
then you start to see an accumulation like unintentionally with just therapeutic dosing. Interesting. And you mentioned that older adults are less likely to come in with an intentional ingestion. Unfortunately, we see many younger adults come in saying, I took 20 Seroquel and 5 Ativan and this or that. How are older adults more likely to present? Common to what you see every day in the emergency room, they have very nonspecific symptoms. A lot of times we'll come in with abdominal pain or unexplained weakness or fatigue, some nausea, vomiting, um, some shortness of breath. Maybe somebody will come in with a fall and you think, oh, it's because they're 80 and they're unstable with their gait, as opposed to thinking, oh, maybe they took too much of their sedative hypnotic or their benzodiazepine that then prompted them to fall. So it's a good thing to keep in the back of our minds for a lot of these nonspecific cases. The weak and dizzy, repeated falls, the belly pain, nausea, vomiting, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I would say also with adults, any adults even our age, a lot of people don't know actually what. Our age being 25? (laughs) Yes. Exactly, exactly. Right out of college, so young and bright. Um, Yeah, just... Most people don't know what's in their medication or what they are taking. A lot of people can't give me their medication list. And then just in terms of especially all the the different pain medications, a lot of people don't know exactly what's in it, which ones have acetaminophen, which one has aspirin. People mistake Tylenol with ibuprofen all the time. So a lot of times it's just unintentional. They just don't know what they're taking. I'm going to jump in with a few quick summaries from time to time now that I am not up to my eyeballs with coronavirus, as I was when I recorded this with May. But to summarize some of the ways in which older adults are more susceptible to overdoses, the first three have to do with volume of distribution. Those are decreased muscle mass, increased fat percentage, and decreased percentage of intracellular water. And then the fourth, decreased albumin. This is going to increase the amount of free agent or free chemical that you have because you aren't binding it up to your albumin. And then the last two are changes in hepatic function, which may reduce metabolism of the drugs, and then change in renal function. And I think renal function is really one of the biggest ones that I see frequently. For example, things like insulin dosing, when you have a renal dysfunction, function, your insulin is going to hang around longer. Digoxin is another big one. Lithium. These things that are renally excreted can become toxic. And then as May mentioned, older adults are not as often going to come in with an acute overdose. It'll more likely be chronic or subacute and will often present with nonspecific symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, frequent falls, confusion, altered mental status. So with that introduction, we are going to present four cases The first is one that we see pretty commonly, and that is salicylate or aspirin toxicity. The presentation of aspirin toxicity is pretty similar in both chronic as well as acute ingestions. Generally, with the chronic ingestions, you just don't have the patient coming in saying, I just overdosed on all this. So what you're looking for is really the later symptoms that present. And so what I would expect in terms of an acute ingestion would be things such as abdominal pain, some nausea and vomiting. You can have some hematemesis from the local irritation. There's always the symptom of tinnitus or ringing in the ears that you start seeing as well. Very early on in the ingestion, there's actually direct stimulation of your central respiratory system. So you get hyperpnea, you get tachypnea that's independent of what's going on with you metabolically. So you have an independent primary respiratory alkalosis. And then as the aspirin is then metabolized, you develop a metabolic acidosis, develop an anion gap metabolic acidosis on top of 
your respiratory alkalosis. So there's two primary processes kind of going on. As acidosis worsens, you become a little confused. The salicylate ions actually start moving into your brain and you start developing confusion, delirium, agitation, lethargy, and then the seizure coma death that you see with most toxicologic presentations. So that would be an acute ingestion. So say somebody who intentionally overdosed on a bunch of aspirin. Is that going to be different at all in terms of chronic ingestion? So somebody who's maybe taking a lot of aspirin or BC powders for pain and then is just upping the dose because their pain is not controlled? In terms of somebody who presents with chronic, usually, again, you just don't have the history that this is what I've been taking. But you see very, again, nonspecific symptoms, nausea, vomiting. Some people just come in with, I'm a little short of breath or my breathing is a little funny. They can't explain it. And it's because they have this underlying acidosis and they're trying, their body's trying to compensate naturally. A lot of times people come in a little altered, a little confused. And the elderly has actually been misdiagnosed quite a bit with delirium or encephalopathy. There's been a lot of case reports where people have been in the hospital for one to two days before they're actually diagnosed with their aspirin toxicity. You can also see like a low-grade fever hmm. with aspirin overdoses or aspirin toxicity. What happens is it actually interferes with the Krebs cycle. So in couples, oxidation and phosphorylation results in like a lactic acidosis. It inhibits your incorporation of ATP, so you generate some heat. So what we see is older adults come in, people think they're septic or have some infectious process. They're given aspirin to help bring everything down and kind yeah. of just exacerbates the whole symptoms. Interesting. I mean, definitely with the shortness of breath and a low-grade fever, it's easy to think pneumonia Absolutely. or maybe you know, other source of sepsis. Um, that drives home the point, first of all, to at least think about it, and then uh, second of all, to get a good medication history. We should be asking about their doses, how much they're taking, if they can tell us, and if there's been changes in the doses. Now, is the treatment different at all for acute or chronic ingestions? The treatment is generally the same in both in terms of wanting to decontaminate as, as well as wanting to just enhance elimination and get it out. There are certain caveats that apply to one or the other. In terms of an acute ingestion, I think of decontamination as kind of taking the first line, um, especially in people who have the enteric-coated aspirin. Uh, the enteric coating on the aspirin pill itself tends to make it concrete and form what we call a bezoar, which not only just prolongs the exposure, but then it also puts the patient at risk of having a second bolus. You never know if there's a piece of the bezoar that suddenly comes off and suddenly there's a huge bolus of exposure there. So I am pretty aggressive when it comes with decontamination and acute aspirin overdose. I give them activated charcoal up front, and it's one of the few overdoses where I'll give activated charcoal even outside the one-hour window, as long as their mental status is clear, their breathing well and I don't think there's another contraindication to give it. How far out would you give it? Say they took it a couple hours ago but they're alert and oriented they're not vomiting, they're not altered at all, I would tend to give it. Because then I also actually recommend multi-dose activated chart down the line as well. And what that is is just repeat dosing of it every four or six hours and that's really with an attempt to coat the BZOR and to coat anything that might be there to hope it passes without any other portions of it concreting off. In terms of the chronic ones, I I'm not really as aggressive in terms of decontamination just because you don't really know when their last dose was, especially down here in the South. I think we're lucky to have some called BC powders, <laughs> which was something new for me, and I <laughs> had to find out what that was. Because it's in the powder form, you expect instant absorption, mm-hmm. so you yeah. don't have that delayed effect. So a lot of the elderly people I've seen nowadays who come in with it is because they're taking these BC powders for pain. I'm less aggressive in terms of giving activated charcoal up front. BC powder and goodies powder? and Goodies. Yeah, that's the other one. um, Powdered formulations were definitely something I was not familiar with either before coming.
coming down south. And when patients told me, I thought it was some sort of drug that they were (laughs) disclosing to me that they were using some illicit drug. And I see new residents, new interns, when they come down here, too, they have the same experience. They're like, oh, the patient told me they're taking BC powder. And I'm like, oh, that's just, that's aspirin. (laughs) You have to whisper it when you say, BC powder. It's a secret. Um, But the secret is out. It's just aspirin. What about supportive care for the aspirin or salicylate? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're about that. When you think about somebody who's aspirin intoxicated, there's a huge amount of fluid loss. One of the things like we were talking about is when you had the metabolic acidosis and people present with the hyperpnea and the tachypnea, it's really quite impressive if you've ever seen somebody who's really aspirin toxic. They take these huge breaths, they're breathing really rapidly, um, a lot of times they're sweating, so just the natural fluid losses. So I'm usually aggressive with fluid hydration, first line. And then something that people don't really think about is you actually have to give some glucose supplementation even in people who have a normal serum glucose. There's been some thoughts that if you have what we call a neuroglycopenia, where you have lower glucose level in your CSF fluid, even with a normal serum level, and that might contribute to altered mental status and confusion. So just kind of take that off the table and to feed the brain a little bit. And why does that happen? No one really knows. It's actually a little unclear, but they've had some studies with kids who received LPs because they were confused, they were having low-grade fevers, found to be aspirin toxic. And interestingly enough, when they looked at the CSF fluid, glucose was almost non-existent with a normal serum glucose. So Interesting. So fluids, because of insensible losses, glucose, because of the neuroglycopenia, that's Mm -hmm. my new word of the day. Um, (laughs) And then what else? And then finally, of course, we think about, because there's no antidote for aspirin, the only other thing we can do is try to help enhance the elimination. This is the money portion of it. Um, So I generally start recommending alkalinization with serum bicarb with a level of 30 milligrams per deciliter. And I'm saying the units very specifically because they're really important here. These units actually aren't the same units that are used in every hospital. So you just have to make sure you know what the units are. Some places would do a milligram per liter versus milligram per deciliter. 30 milligrams per deciliter or 300 milligrams per liter is when I generally start to think about using bicarb. On top of that, um, when you think about, because in order to do the urine um, alkalinization to enhance elimination, people have to have functioning kidneys, particularly in adults who have kind of compromised renal function, who maybe because of the insensible losses with the aspirin toxicity have developed a bit of AKI. In those people, we start thinking about dialysis. So dialysis is kind of the big ultimate intervention you can give here. And with that, in terms of numbers, we also think about an acute overdose with a level about 90 to 100 milligrams per deciliters or 900 to 1,000 milligrams per liter, or for chronics, I actually think about it much lower, about 600 milligrams per de- uh, 600 milligrams per liter, or 60 milligrams per deciliter, and that's just because they already have a higher aspirin um, saturation in their tissues, and it just takes that much less to kind of to tip them over the edge. Got it. So we are doing elimination with activated charcoal, potentially multiple doses in the acute ingestion. We're checking a level, a salicylate level, obviously. We're checking their kidney function, their electrolytes. We are repleting their fluids. We're giving them glucose. And then we are alkalinizing their urine to enhance elimination. 
and in severe cases we are setting them up for emergent dialysis. Let's say they're not getting dialyzed, but they look pretty sick. What do we do with these patients? I'll tell you, aspirin toxic people are one of the people that gets my sphincter tone super high. I'll say aspirin toxicity as well as calcium channel blockers are the two injections that make me the absolute nervous and will wake me up out of a dead sleep at 2 a.m. These people have to be monitored super closely. They need frequent blood draws. Most likely will need an ICU setting if they're looking as poorly as you're sounding with close monitoring of their ABG and their electrolytes. Starting bicarb actually also has other implications kind of down the line in these aspirin toxic patients. When you give someone bicarb, you actually cause them to have a hypokalemia. And with that hypokalemia, it actually kind of works at the distal tubules of your kidneys and it causes your body to re-pull up some of the, the hydrogen ions. So you're almost shooting yourself in the foot. So you want to make sure you replete their K well with it. So careful monitoring of their potassium. You want to have, I generally say Q1 to 2 hours aspirin levels with ABGs, knowing that in real life it happens Q2 to 3, maybe 4 hours. <laughs> But I tend to, over the phone, if I sound more worried and make it shorter, I find that they actually get um, get the monitoring that you want. And then just close neuro checks as well. I forgot to say earlier, the big thing that kills these people really is the aspirin in the brain. And so um, that's the big things you want to look for. So end-stage symptoms such as CNS changes, confusion. You can get ARDS or pulmonary edema from some capillary leak, severe acidosis, HD instability. Those are all the people that I would start considering dialysis with. And I would consider this in people, even if their levels maybe don't quite meet the guidelines that we were talking about, because those levels really are just guidelines and that the clinical presentation should really trump everything else. And then what about these patients come in short of breath and altered? And if you didn't know that it is salicylate toxicity, I could see somebody being intubated. What is the big risk with this? I'm so glad you brought this up. This is the big controversy, the big thing that makes a lot of toxicologists nervous. There's been a lot of talk about intubating an aspirin patient because there's such a high mortality that surrounds intubation in somebody who's salicylate toxic. Part of the thing is you have to watch somebody who is severely intox- intoxicated with aspirin. Their breathing pattern is crazy. They're having these huge minute volumes. They're breathing in super fast, super t- like large tidal volumes. Generally, what happens is that you can't match that on a respirator. It's really hard to match that. Just what your own body can do in terms of compensating for the degree of acidosis. So there's two things. I always have the respiratory therapist come watch the patient, see if they, we can estimate the rate and the tidal volumes. And even if the that number sounds crazy, I tell them this is what we need to start with the instant they get onto the ventilator. Because once you stop having that degree of compensation, you then have the respiratory acidosis on top of your metabolic acidosis. And the idea is even just that brief period where they're paralyzed and you're trying to get that tube in, even if it's only seconds, could be enough to shift your acid-base status to you're just a little bit more acidotic and that's what will kill you. So if I can summarize all that um, briefly, acute and chronic ingestions in older adults with salicylates are going to look pretty similar with some nondescript altered mental status, shortness of breath, a metabolic acidosis, but also a respiratory alkalosis, at least acutely. And what we want to do is focus on, number one, elimination. So this could be through bicarb for renal elimination, as well as the activated charcoal to get the bezoar out of mm-hmm. the stomach and quickly move things through the gut. You want to fluid resuscitate, give glucose to prevent the neuroglycopenia, which is not going to help your altered mental status. You want to replete their potassium, which they will be losing renally. 
And then when you admit these patients, you want to send them to a pretty high level monitoring with Q1 to 2 hour ABG and salicylate levels. And in serious situations where the patient is decompensating or they're so altered they can't protect their airway or they're starting to tire out, if you do have to intubate these patients, do it with some fear and trembling and uh, set them up with a high minute ventilation as soon as you have intubated them and try to minimize the apneic period. So these patients don't have an oxygenation problem, they have a ventilation problem. So you want to minimize yeah. those that time where they're not ventilating and then try to blow off that CO2 that's accumulating that's going to worsen their acidosis. That and a little prayer, see if that helps. <laughs> so that was a great summary of salicylate. Thank you. I'm going to stop us there for today, but we have three more toxicologic cases that we'll be discussing in a future episode. As always, you can connect with us on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at GemPodcast, and also on our website, GemPodcast.com. Feel free to log in and leave a message. Thanks for listening.